let's get this right, right up front. Okay, let's let's get this correct. It is pronounced Nahum. Can you say that with me? Nahum. It's not Nahum. Nahum. That is so uh, so Western Americanized. Nahum. We're going to study the book of Nahum. That's like saying I eat hummus. I buy hummus at Costco, you know, in those little pre-packs. That's not hummus, it's hummus. And by the way, it tastes better if you say it that way, hummus. Exactly, thank you. Got to get it in the throat, kind of deep down in there. Nahum. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way. And clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of Him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Amen. Father, as we open up the book of Nahum the prophet, your servant, we do so trembling before you. Because we recognize first and foremost you are an awesome God. And you deserve... All glory and honor, not sung lightly and tritely in uh, superficial ways, Lord, but with the depth of our being to recognize how great You truly are. How magnificent, Father. And how great is Your love in the midst of all that. Wow. Lord, help us to understand now the writing that You brought through the servant Nahum, the way you spoke, the things you said, that which you wanted to be proclaimed. Father, help us to see what it is in this day and age you would have us know. And give us your spirit as, as our rabbi, as our teacher. Because you are the one who knows what you want us to learn and you're the one who knows how to impress it on our hearts. We just come with open hearts ready to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John wrote in his opening chapter, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained. He has made Him known to us. He has expressed the true nature of the Father. He has shown us God in the flesh. But before Jesus came, to my mind, the Lord gave the most vivid self-portrait of His divine nature to Moses. Keep your fingers in Nahum and turn back to Exodus chapter 34. 
You may recall the story. Moses is on the mountain with God. Moses says, hey, I want to see you, Lord. And the Lord said, it would blow your mind. And body and spirit, you'd be gone. You'd be toast. It's my translation. He said, you couldn't handle to see me. But I'll let you see my goodness as it passes by. And then the Lord describes Himself. And here's what He says. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, and the implication, you Bible students know, for thousands of generations who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now what does that tell us about God? And you probably already noted in the reading from Nahum that there are some similarities there. Obviously, the prophet had a little bit of Exodus on his mind as he was writing. For the Lord brought these things to mind. But what this tells us about the Lord God is He cares so much. He visits each and every successive generation to see who, if anyone, is listening to Him. To see who, if anyone, is paying attention. To see if anyone loves Him. Note that again, He keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren. That doesn't mean He looks at the children and grandchildren and says, your fathers are so simple, you're going to pay for that. He says, I'm going to come and see if you're still doing what they did. Or if you're doing what I've called you to do. Every generation has that opportunity. Nobody bears the fault of their father's sins. And no one can rest on the faith of the previous generation either. Each generation has to decide what to do with the Lord. And it was a new generation in Nineveh. Go back now to Nahum. I know, you want to say Kazuntai every time I say that. <laughs> It was a new generation in Nineveh. Nearly 150 years had gone by, roughly, since Jonah's Mediterranean cruise and his visit to the Assyrian capital. Jonah had gone to Nineveh, and he slunked into the city with a direct message from God. You recall this. We studied Jonah not long ago now. The message was basically, you got 40 days, turn or burn, repent, or wrath is coming. It was a serious message, it was a heavy message, and remarkably, and to Jonah's grumpy dismay, his words hit home. There was a massive, perhaps one of the greatest in all history, a massive revival in Nineveh, the Gentile pagan city. Everybody dropped to their knees. Kings, princes, peasants, all the way down. Everybody put on sackcloth and ashes. Everybody repented. And the Lord turned from His wrath in a stunning turn of events. The city was saved. In fact, you know what? Let's just go back and look at that. A couple of books back in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 7. It says... The king issued a proclamation. And it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. 
But both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring on them. And he did not do it. Down in chapter 4, verse 11. The Lord is trying to explain this to grumpy Jonah, and He says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as we pointed out, children, as well as many animals. Speaking of the saved generation of Nineveh, of that particular time in Nineveh's history of those particular people, Jesus said in Luke 11 verse 30, just as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. How do you think that spun around the Jewish mind? The Assyrian Ninevites will condemn us? Ha! And yet Jesus was there. Assyria, Nineveh repented. The generation of Jesus, would they? When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Fast forward from that original generation that was saved in Nineveh, again nearly a century and a half to roughly 630 B.C. Give or take. It was a new day, a new generation, a whole new ball game of Assyrian animosity toward the Lord God. And in verse 1 of the book of Nahum, it says the oracle of Nineveh. The oracle of Nineveh. The word oracle we have seen before in the Hebrew, it's Masah, and it means burden or judgment. This is the judgment of Nineveh because this generation of Nineveh just a generation or two after Jonah's day, said, no thanks to the Lord. We would not have any of you. How easy is it for an entire generation to turn on a dime? It doesn't take long for everything to change. And if a generation of people, an entire city and or nation of people can turn around that quickly, it makes me wonder, how about an individual person? Younger people especially listen. Although those of us who are a bit older need to hear this as well. Do not take comfort in your parents' faith. And don't try to carry their failures either. They will deal with their faith. They will deal with their failures. Hopefully they're passing along faith to you. But their faith is not your faith. You've got to decide. You've got to deal with Jesus. Jesus comes to this generation and He says, Who will come after me? Who will follow me? And nobody's going to stand at the gates of heaven and say, Well, Mom and Dad, we're at church every Sunday. So, we're good, right? Despite the previous awakening, things turned out very badly for Nineveh. And the little book of Nahum is the shocking sequel to Jonah. This is the second movie. Everyone loved the first movie. The second movie is pretty dark. It's pretty despairing. 
Here's a glimpse. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That is more specific than you might realize. The idea of an overwhelming flood, an overflowing flood, well, yeah, that's a great word picture for a serious judgment that would come flooding into Nineveh. But more than that, we're told by the Greek historian Cetesis back in uh, 612 B.C. Actually, he, he wrote in the 5th century B.C., but he wrote that in 612 B.C., Nineveh was invaded and destroyed by Babylon when the Tigris River suddenly and explicably overflowed its banks and swept away the floodgates of the city and the foundations of the palace. That's how Babylon got in, by an overwhelming flood. No one could explain why the Tigris overflowed. It just did. And suddenly the city gates go down and in comes the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, the whole coalition of armies that took down Nineveh. And it happened in 612 B.C., exactly how the prophet Nahum said it would happen. By the way, this is how we know when Nahum came on the scene, his prophecy is sandwiched between two major destructions. The second one being Nineveh there in 612. He prophesied before the destruction of Nineveh, but he also prophesied of the fallout of another famous city. If you turn over to chapter 3 and look at verse 8. And it says, Are you better than Noaman, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, which with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted, past tense, of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits, put and Lubim were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. Who's he talking about here? He's giving an example to Nineveh of another great city that was destroyed, a city called Noamon. No in the Hebrew meaning disrupted, and Amon, not Amon as in Jordan or as in the Ammonites, but Amon was the city of Thebes. Thebes was called Amon. Thebes was destroyed in 663 B.C. Nahum comes along and he refers to this previous destruction of the city of Thebes, and he prophesies about the coming destruction of the city of Nineveh. So somewhere between 663 B.C. when Thebes fell and 612 B.C. when Nineveh fell, somewhere in there, Nahum prophesied. And so conservative scholars place it right about 630. And that's how we have the date. Nahum is amazingly precise in his prophecies. He uses brilliant word pictures, but these word pictures are many times literal, as in the overflowing flood that would take down the city gates. As in Noaman, the disrupted city of Thebes being taken apart. He also talks about the historically drunken state of the Assyrian soldiers when Nineveh fell. He addresses this. It says uh, by Diodorus Sicilus, 
I kid you not. I think it was a cousin of Theodoric of York. I'm not sure. <laughs> you old Saturday Night Live fans will get that. In 20 BC, this Roman writer said, quote, the Assyrian king distributed to his soldiers meat and liberal supplies of wine and provisions. While the whole army was thus carousing, the friends of Arbacis learned from some deserters, learned from some deserters, the whole problem is Nahum. That's the, I'm, I'm stuck on that word. Learn from some deserters of the slackness and drunkenness which prevailed in the Assyrian camp and made an unexpected attack by night. Chapter 1, verse 10 in the book of Nahum says, Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. They were drunk when they were attacked. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for refuge from the enemy. So you've got to be careful when you're reading through this not to just skip over things and assume they're just uh, metaphors for destruction. Some of this is absolutely this is exactly what happened. A drunken city overflowed with the flood and Nahum covers this amazingly. So the prophecy of Nahum, three chapters, three stanzas really, of one ongoing vision, one short vision, is a judgment. It's an oracle. It is a burden. It is a heavy-duty prophecy. That's kind of the idea going into this. How about the prophet himself? It's the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. What is an Elkishite? I'd love to tell you, but it's not Elkishite season until October in Washington. <laughs> so we're really out of wait for that. Sorry. I was hunting for a good pun. Best I could do. Elkosh was the name of the city that Nahum is from. The Elkoshite. Uh, some think it was down in the south. Others think perhaps up in the Galilee. It was a common name in perhaps many places in Israel in the day. There is an interesting speculation I'll pass on to you. Some of you may recall this. Elkosh was later named Kafar Nahum. Kafar Nahum. Capernaum. Which means Nahum's village. Or also means the village of comfort. You see, Nahum's name means comforter. Which is... A fascinating name for the prophet who brings such a heavy burden. He brings an oracle, a judgment, and yet he is comforter. And that, my friends, is the underlying current of what on the surface is a very stormy prophecy. Again, this is the oracle, the burden, the judgment of Nineveh. But get this, it was given for the comfort of Judah. What for one is judgment is for the other comfort. Nahum brings comfort to Judah even in incredibly tumultuous times. It reminds me of Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of the storm. Now remember that. The Bible tells us that Jesus approached the apostles in the boat there on the Sea of Galilee. He was up on the mountain praying. He sees from the mountain that the apostles are straining at the oars. Things are stirred up on the sea. It's tempestuous. It's tumultuous. And Jesus goes for a walk. And they see Him coming and they think He's a ghost and they're freaking out. But Jesus comes and says, Don't be afraid, it's Me. And everything ultimately stills. This is a short version of the story. You know, Peter went out, fell in, all that stuff. But 
The Lord stills the water, gets in the boat with them. He brings them comfort, even in the midst of the waves and the sea and the circumstance and the strain and the stress. And Jesus reminds me, and think about this as we go through Nahum, that we are not among those who are driven by the winds of circumstance. And we are not battered about on the waves of the previous generation. We have the same opportunity of the comfort of the Spirit of Christ that every generation prior and any generation that may or may not come after would have. And so even when the world seems to be a raging, rolling storm around you, and it often is, and it often catches people off guard, understand that beneath the waves, there's comfort. There's comfort in the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, may He strengthen and comfort your hearts in every good work and word. Be comforted in the Lord in spite of the storms. So Nahum comes along. Comfort is the word of the day. But it doesn't always come as you might think. Consider where we've been with the minor prophets so far. So far. The, the twelve have shown us, or the few that, that we've seen thus far. We're, we're on number seven, I think. Hosea comforts like a Hallmark card. Right? He's the one who invites Gomer, his wife, back. Keeps calling her back to him just over and over. Shows the faithfulness of God. And that's the comfort we see in Hosea. Joel is like an air raid siren. How is that comforting? It's a call to shelter. And once you get into that shelter, my daughter, you all know Hannah, moved out to Wisconsin and already has experienced a couple of tornadoes. One that set down in Verona, the town that she's living in. Wiped out the Capulets' house, the Montague's house was gone. <laughs> and when these, when these tornado sirens go off, she's, she's up on, I think, the second or third floor of their apartment, has to race down to the basement and stay down there. She said it's actually really boring. But those two minutes or so going down the stairs to get down there are absolutely frightening. But once you're down there, you're safe. Joel comes along like an air raid siren, a warning. The missiles are coming, as so many Israelis are experiencing today. And it's terrifying until you get into the shelter. So Joel even brings us comfort in the shelter. Amos comforts in the form of a lion's roar. Which normally would terrify you if you were out on, uh, in, the, in the jungles and you heard that and you were unarmed. But if you know the lion, though he's not a tame lion, the lion's roar is comforting. Obadiah. How about Obadiah? He gave the blue ribbon to the second man. The prize of first place goes to the second man. There's comfort in that. As we talked about with him, to be born again, to be the second man, the second woman. Saved by the Lord. Jonah reveals oceans of grace (laughs) for the Gentile. It's a shocking book because it is grace for the Gentiles in the midst of all the grace shown to Israel. Micah showed us the Nobel Peace Prize in Messiah, who is our peace. And Nahum comes along, and in each of these instances, comfort is offered to the people of Israel. Comfort is offered to those who have ears to hear. And even with Nahum, he reveals comfort in the Avenger. Come!
comfort for Judah in God their avenger who would avenge everything that had come against them. And his prophecy begins with the awesome power of an avenging God. Look at verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. A few things to note. We're just going to do the first few verses here in this description of our awesome avenging God. And the first thing is, God is the avenger. Marvel got it wrong. God is the avenger. Not Iron Man. Not the Hulk. Not Captain America. Not even Thor, who thinks he's a god, by the way. And by the way, if he's Thor, maybe he should try a little icy hot for his muffles. We'll stop right there. (laughs) Marvel describes the Avengers. If you Google this, the description of the Avengers is, quote, those who stand together to fight the foes no single superhero can withstand. What a bunch of wimps. (laughs) Iron Man cannot handle the foes. Thor couldn't do it on his own. They had to band together. Well, guess what? We have an Avenger who needs no help. We have an Avenger who is almighty. Psalm 94, verse 1, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. There's only one Avenger who is truly marvelous. It just goes from bad to worse, doesn't it? Vengeance. i got to tell you, verse 2 of the book of Nahum is one I would not have wanted to read years ago. Not out loud. It's the kind of verse, you know, the Christians would speak in quiet. He is vengeful. Shh, don't tell anybody. He is a God of wrath, but we don't want to say that to the unbeliever. Because people come along, and that's just the kind of Old Testament God Christian, uh, critics of, of Christian thought come against. Oh, your God's God of wrath and vengeance. I don't like that Old Testament God, that Bronze Age, past tense, irrelevant to this genteel world. Let me just ask you a couple of questions here. Who's going to deal with the growing threat of the Islamic State? You see, right now, our State Department is saying ISIS is more dangerous than Al-Qaeda ever was. Threats to this country with with porous borders? And, And if I wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ, and if I didn't know that my God is the Avenger, I might be a little scared. I might be a little worried about the terrorist possibilities in the hands of this brutal, brutal group. Who's going to bring justice to Jihadi John, the beheader of the American journalist James Foley? Who's going to deal with this stuff? What does justice look like for that kind of evil? Oh, it's nice to have a peace rally and to hold up a sign and say, we just all need to lay down our arms. But who's going to deal with the evil in this world? We need an avenger. We need someone who knows how to bring vengeance. And again, people may protest and they may decry vengeance until they need justice. Until it's your son who was beheaded. Until it's your daughter who was raped or murdered. Then it's a different thing, isn't it? Oh, I don't like the idea of a vengeful God. No, not until you have been hurt or harmed. 
Not until you yourself need justice. And the combination here of vengeful, jealous, and wrathful. Note this. He uses the word vengeance three times. It's the same word in the Hebrew. Avenging God, avenging and wrathful, and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. Nahum's not messing around. Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. Avenger, avenger, avenger. The word is nakam in the Hebrew, and it means vengeance for justice. That's the focus of the avenger is to truly bring justice and to add emphasis to its weight. In this second verse, he uses two supporting words, jealous and wrathful. Let me be absolutely clear. Our God of love, grace, and compassion is a vengeful God. He is jealous and He is wrathful. And this is part of who God is. This is an aspect of the nature of Jesus. You may not like that. You may be uncomfortable with it. But this is what the Bible describes. Before you get too uncomfortable, note this. The combination of vengeance with jealousy and wrath describes a God who cares passionately for His people. Not one who's distanced, detached, who's disconnected, who's off playing golf. One who cares about His people. (laughs) Don't you want Him to be jealous for you? Or would you rather have a God who just doesn't really care if you're, you know, if you show up, great. If not, whatever. Make it to heaven. Who cares? I don't know. I'll be here. But, you know, if you want to come. What kind of a God do you do you want? God of the Bible cares so deeply, so much. And by the way, He's not jealous of you. That would be silly. He is jealous for you. He wants you. He wants me all to Himself. Now, now get this. I, I implicitly trust my wife. Absolutely trust Cheryl. But I am jealous for her. I want her all to myself. I refuse to share her with other men. Not going to happen, so stop asking. (laughs) God the Avenger is a jealous God. He doesn't want to share you with the sin of the world. He doesn't want to share you with the devil. He doesn't want to share you with any other gods. He wants you all for Himself and He will fight for you. Even to the death. His own death. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35 says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. Who? The enemies of God's people. Their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate His people. He will have compassion on His servants. When He sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. The Apostle Paul grabs hold of that verse and and says, Listen, vengeance is mine. Thus saith the Lord. Leave it to God. Vengeance is not ours. Because we're not strong enough. We could band all of us together. We could be the Avengers and we still are not strong enough to deal with the evil in this world. Only one is. And for anyone who would come out against you because of Jesus, He is the Avenger. I'm glad He is. I'm glad because I don't have to deal with wrath and jealousy and vengeance. I don't have to try and figure out who I'm supposed to be for or against. I just, I'm just for Him. And He in His perfect justice 
will avenge what needs to be avenged and will dole out vengeance to those who require vengeance. But check this out. Verse 3 going on says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The avenger, secondly, is slow to anger. That's a good thing. You see, that's why Nineveh was saved in the first place. That's why it took another 150 years for Nineveh to receive judgment in the second place. Because the Lord is slow to anger. But along with that, He's great in power. And the combination of these two defines grace under pressure. It it shows us a God who has awesome power and absolute control. You see, if you or I had the kind of power God has, we'd be in trouble. I'm serious. Someone cuts me off, I'd be like... (laughs) Because I couldn't handle it. But He has absolute power, absolute control, hand in hand. He never flies off the handle. God doesn't lose it. Thankfully. Because we do an awful lot that would make him lose it if he didn't have this perfect control. Jesus in the temple, what a perfect example of power and complete control. Yeah, what about that? Jesus who cleared the temple and turns over the money changers' tables and grabs a whip and drives out the animals. That seemed kind of out of control to me. Well, then you didn't read the story. Because Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 15 tell us Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, goes into the temple, looks around, and goes and spends the night in Bethany. And the next morning comes back to the temple and clears the temple out. He gave himself 24 hours to pray, to think, to be prepared, and then to do what was righteously required. Exactly what was the right thing to do. He didn't fly off the handle. Nahum here recalls that powerful portrait that God painted of himself to Moses in Exodus 34 when he says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And that is a comforting word if you're the afflicted. It's comforting to know. They're not going to get away with it. Sin, no one is going to just get off scot-free. And by the way, that includes you and me. For every sin ever committed, you're not getting away with anything. And so you give faith to the Lord who takes that sin and bears the punishment for that sin. Your sin and mine, punished. There is vengeance taken out on my sin. Jesus took it on His shoulders at the cross. And for anyone who would reject God, who would reject Jesus, they will by no means be left unpunished. You will be avenged. Every wrong will be made right. The guilty, punished. Again, but what, what if I'm the guilty? He's slow to anger. So that your punishment can be transferred to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which is a Pauline fancy way of saying your messiness. Your sin canceled out. It was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. 
And so the unrepentant foe had better get ready. Because the avenger is coming. And he is slow to anger and great in power. But the day comes when his wrath will be presented. The second half of verse 3 going on. In whirlwind and storm is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Well, he did that with the Red Sea, didn't he? He dries up all the rivers. He did that with the Jordan. But it says rivers, plural. He's going to dry up the Euphrates, the book of Revelation tells us. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. (laughs) San Francisco, this morning. 6.1 earthquake. The hills dissolve, which I think speaks of volcanoes, which is literally mountains dissolving before our eyes. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Note that we don't have a mother nature, just a father creator. There is no such thing. What a sad, pathetic second, you know? It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. I remember that commercial when I was a kid. And like, first of all, lady, get a different hat. It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. And I just go, click, fooled. (laughs) Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. It's a long time ago, old commercial. But here's the thing, the Avenger, our avenging God has authority over all creation. Now you know that. If you've studied His Word at all, if you are aware of creation at all, you know He is the one in complete and total and utter authority. Praise the Lord from the earth. Psalm 148, verse 7. Sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail and snow and clouds and stormy wind fulfilling His Word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth, all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. He is the one in authority. But how does a being who is beyond created space and time and dimension, how does he get the attention of puny, limited humanity? How does he shake things up in this world? How does he remind us there is someone beyond us? Jesus said in Luke 21-25, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on earth dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Why are men perplexed at the roaring of the sea and the waves? Because they don't understand who holds it all together. They don't get it. And yes, when there is a hurricane... When there is an earthquake, as took place this morning, interesting that so many earthquakes are centered around San Francisco. I'm just saying. <laughs> but when these super, when, when the, we call them natural disasters, I don't know. I am one to, to go to immediately, is God trying to get our attention? Is there something the Lord wants us to realize, to understand? What's happening in our country that would cause God to allow, to pull back even, to lift covering and allow things like Katrina to hit when it did. Or some of the disasters that have befallen our nation. Is there a connection perhaps to our relationship with Israel? Is there a connection perhaps to our response to God as Creator and King and God? 
Is there a connection? He is not a disconnected, distant God. And so having authority over all creation, He will speak, I believe, through creation. He will do things in creation. He will shake it up around here. To say, are you you paying attention to me? Have you read the book of Revelation? (laughs) The period of time called the tribulation is seven years where God pours out wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And it is stunning. I mean, it will be more tumultuous than it's been in all history. It's going to be like going back to the early days of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the children of Israel coming out of, the, out of Egypt and across the desert. Signs and wonders and powers and shaking on the earth. Mountains will quake. Hills, as Nahum says, will dissolve. The earth will be upheaved by His presence. And notice, Nahum says, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Now this is a prophecy fulfilled by the destruction of Nineveh. Nahum prophesied it. It happened literally within a couple of decades of him saying it would. And now here we are 2,600 years later. And I read that and say, yeah, but it also says the world. The world. The whole world. Well, when has that happened? It hasn't. It will. There is an implication of the indignation of God, a wrath that is to come. Verse 6 goes on and says, Who can stand before His indignation? And as we talked about Wednesday night, when you see the, the word indignation in the Hebrew Scriptures, typically you're looking at a description of the tribulation. Because when God becomes indignant, He who is slow to anger avenges. And His indignation speaks of His wrath. It is an indication of His ultimate vengeance on a Christ-rejecting world. Who can stand? Who can endure the burning of His anger? Can you? Can I? Can, Can this generation? Is this the one who doesn't really need the church and the Bible and, and all that anymore? Who can stand? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up before Him. God is the avenger who is slow to anger with all power and authority in heaven and on earth, which, by the way, all power and authority in heaven and on earth was claimed by Jesus in Matthew 28.18. All authority has been given to me, He says. Let's just be clear that you know who's in charge. And now, Nahum brings it all together. We come to verse 7. And it's been called by Spurgeon, an island in Nahum's stormy lake. I like that. An island in this stormy lake just says, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. And that's the last thing to note. The Avenger is our stronghold. The Avenger is our stronghold. Iron Man and, and the Hulk and Captain America and Mighty Thor who still needs some Bengay. These guys have a, a ship, right, called the, what is it called? The Helio something. That's kind of their, their safe place in the clouds. Well, if you saw the first Avengers movie, you know it's not very safe. <laughs> Just shoot that sucker down and down it goes. We have a stronghold that is safe and secure that our Avenger calls us to. 
But I want you to see something in this verse. Note the division. We see this verse coming at us in three descriptions. A comfort that we can find in Father, Spirit, and Son. First, God the Father. The Lord is good. He is God over us. And He is good. And if you've been uncomfortable with me referring to God as the Avenger, listen, at the very core of His avenging awesomeness, His anger and His authority is simply goodness. And that's the difference between the Lord and any other avenging power. Any other avenging foe on earth or in the heavenlies, God is innately good. And so when He pours out wrath, when He pours out vengeance, you got to understand it comes from the source, the place, the center of goodness that nobody else has like He has. A man ran up to Jesus, Mark chapter 10, and knelt before Him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. A little teaching lesson there between Jesus and this guy. You're going to call me good. He doesn't say you're not right to call me good. He just said only God is called good. So, good job. (laughs) Romans 8.28 We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And note that tag, because when we sing, you make all things work together for my good, that's not a blanket universal. He makes all things work together for good for those who love Him. For those who are called according to His purpose. That means if you're called according to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you love Him, if you live for Him, and things go bad in your life, guess what? God is working it for good. It will have an ultimate good. And it may not be immediate, and it may be eternal. But He is working it for good. If you love Him, if you're called according to His purpose, if you don't, all things do not work together for good. It may on the surface seem like things just work out. But as Ken Mansfield shared with us last night, by the way, wasn't that great? Yes. That was so fun having him here and, and hearing him speak and the, and the band. It was, we had a really good time last night. But Ken pointed that out. You know, he had it all. It was all working for him. He went from the top of the game in the music business to moving around equipment on a stage. And God was making all things work out to good for this guy. Breaking his pride. And bringing him to the place where he could move those amps and that equipment and yet still do it to the glory of the Lord. God works all things to good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. I like that because you can't do that from a distance. You can't taste and see that the Lord is good by watching an occasional televangelist. You can't taste and see that the Lord is good by showing up at church once every year. You taste and see that the Lord is good by getting as close as possible to the Father through the Son. And when you do, you discover that not only is God over us good, but God in us is a stronghold. God in us. He says, a stronghold in the day of trouble. I think that's a great description of the Holy Spirit. Stronghold is the word ma'az in the Hebrew. It's a place of safety, of strength, of protection, specifically from danger. God in us. And we in Him. His Holy Spirit. Instantly and immediately available a help in time of need. 
He's right there. He is the one to whom we may instantly turn. You're out in the middle of nowhere and you're having major problems and you can't get back to your church. What do you do? He's right there. The stronghold is immediate. The stronghold is not an underground barrier. It's it's Him in us. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. Think about this. Jesus just had stayed on planet Earth. Right now, in His human state, He'd be over in Jerusalem in the land of Israel, and if we had a problem, we'd have to book passage you know, on an airline, try to call Him on our cell phone, something, try to get a hold of Him, because He'd be way over there. Jesus said, no, no, when I go away, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to give my Spirit to everybody who comes to me in faith. And that means the guy in the Himalayas and the guy in northern Washington and the guy in Jerusalem, if you're my servants, guess what? I'm with you. A stronghold in time of trouble. Psalm 27 verse 5 says, For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle. And in the secret place of His tent He will hide me, He will lift me up on a rock. This is a dangerous world, gang. And it is getting more dangerous. I don't say that to worry anybody. It just is. And it will continue to get more dangerous, but the Lord has given us His Holy Spirit and with Him a seal of His promise. The Bible says we are sealed with the Spirit of God. We've been tagged as His own. And in the day, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, in the day when God removes His Spirit from this world, guess what? We go with Him. We remain in the stronghold. The church caught up. The church raptured. The world will be void of His Spirit in the tribulation. Because the Spirit comes home and we go with Him. And there is a verse in the Hebrew Scriptures, an interesting verse, Isaiah 26, verse 20, that says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. And I've asked before, might that be talking about the rapture of the church? It's possible. So, God in us, the Spirit, and God over us, the Lord who is good, and note this, and He knows those who take refuge in Him, God with us, Emmanuel, the Son. He knows us. That's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus knows His own. It speaks of intimacy. That closeness with Jesus. Understanding, even affection that He has for you, that He has for me. John 10.14, He says, I know my own and my own know me. That's the deal. There is a relationship. There is a knowing. Jesus says there are those He doesn't know. They're those of the faithless generation who when He comes will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in Your name? Prophesy and and didn't we do miracles and everything in Your name? And He will say, depart from Me, I never knew You. The Lord knows those who are His. And by the way, that's not exclusive. It is the most inclusive invitation in history. The call to be known by Jesus and to know Him has gone out to all the world for God so loves the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And everybody has that opportunity before us. Jesus wants you to know Him and to be known by Him. You see, 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. God is the avenger. But God is good. And He wants you to walk with Him and know Him. Again, Nahum's prophecy is a single vision, three short stanzas, a burden of judgment against Nineveh, in which God is Israel's avenger, and that brings great comfort to Israel, even in the midst of that stormy generation. Rachel, come on up. You can start playing. But let's end with verse 8. With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Its sight, historically, was Nineveh. Its sight, perhaps prophetically indicating the world. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end. You know the Lord calls you, calls me this morning to an overwhelming over. Overwhelming and overflowing flood. It's called baptism. You know, baptism was intended to be an overflowing flood. Not a little sprinkle. And I'm just speaking the words of Scripture. The Greek word baptism, baptizo, is to immerse, to submerge. There is no other definition for it. And God invites us to be taken into an overflowing flood. And in these waters, He makes a complete end of the old man. And a complete beginning of the new man. The old woman dies in the flood. The new woman comes to life in the flood. Washed and clean. Comforted in the goodness of God. Strengthened in the stronghold of His Spirit. And supported by the intimate knowledge of of Jesus the Son. He is the awesome God. And so I put it before you this morning that if you've never been baptized, you've never gone under the water, you've never been submerged, you've never been overflowed, then why put it off? You know, I, I, I kind of say with eyebrow raised, the pond is warm this time of year, you know, and everybody laughs, and uh, yeah, it is... It wouldn't matter if it was ice cold out there. If you hear the Spirit drawing you to the Lord. If you know Jesus is saying, Come. Come and be my own. Then you ought to be in those waters. One of the things, and the shepherds know this, that is a big deal to me, is a baptistry over at the new facility as quickly as possible. I keep bringing it up. When's the baptistry going to go in? When's the baptistry going to go in? Because it matters that we might enter into an overwhelming flood to be washed clean by the Lord. The awesome avenger. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have not gone into the overwhelming flood While we sing this morning, I invite you to come and have a seat on the front row. And we will get you baptized today. Let's stand up and sing.